Welcome to Taking Back Birth, a podcast for women who know the truth about birth and those who want to explore the path of radical birth love. I'm your host, Marin Green. Taking Back Birth celebrates the power you have to make decisions in alignment with your own truth. Decisions not subject to anyone else's authority. Decisions that create experiences that will change your life. Taking Back Birth is a production of the Indie Birth Private Contract Association and IndieBirth.org. No material on this podcast should be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event. Hello, happy Sunday. Figured I might as well get started here right on time for this live podcast event. I see people are already here and I don't have time to waste today. Uh, We are surrounded by suitcases and some empty walls and children who are uh, getting used to this idea and currently screaming downstairs. So no time to waste today to talk about some birthy stuff here with you. Um, I'm super excited about trying another live podcast. It seemed like it worked pretty well last time. So welcome to my live podcast. Uh, If you have questions as we go, I'll do my best to simultaneously talk and also watch for those. Just like my normal podcast, uh, I never know quite where the topic will go. And this is really the same. So I am going to talk even briefly today about shoulder dystocia. What a fun topic that is. Uh, Stuck babies kind of a side uh, fun topic. But first, I usually start my podcast off with some updates and new happenings here at Indie Birth. So I'll do the same uh, for those of you that are live and also those that listen later as a, a normal podcast, which that is what this is. So August 1st is fast approaching. And that marks the day that we leave for our big trip. Uh, Many of you know that and have been supportive in so many helpful ways. So we're down to like 48 hours, basically, till we depart. And maybe I'll have more to say about that on the other side once we reach our destination, uh, because it feels pretty crazy right now, as travel tends to do, especially when you've got eight kids in tow and, uh, you know, a whole house of animals you're leaving with other people. So I don't have too much to say about that right now. Uh, But August 1st is also the full moon in Aquarius. And it's Lamas, which is one of the pagan holidays. Um, And I know there's some other like fun astrological stuff going on as well. So I'm excited to just see uh, what that day brings, what this next next week brings in all of the ways, and really the transition time that we are in. And I know many uh, of you are in. There is a lot of transition going on right now in people's lives. It's kind of amazing. I talked to a friend today on the phone that I haven't talked to in quite a while, and her life is completely flipping upside down as well. So there's something going on something huge. People are changing locations. They're reimagining themselves and their visions for the world, uh, which is so exciting. 
So I am really, really honored to be making some of those changes myself, even though I don't quite know yet what that means or um, I know where we're going, but like in the bigger picture, I don't know where we're going. And so uh, keep updated. I will keep you updated here on this podcast, whether it be live or recorded. Um, Indie birth wise, we do also have a ton of stuff going on and also a lot of transition for Margot and I both personally, which can only be reflected in our work, right? That's the way it goes. Your work isn't really separate from you in a lot of ways. So um, we will be taking a social media break, which probably doesn't bother anybody too much. We have lots of ways of reaching all of you here on YouTube and through our newsletter and our social and all of our fun programs that we have going on. We really need a break from all of it. (laughs) The social media can be so exhausting and I can't even take credit for the daily posting and all of that. Uh, That goes to Sam out there who does a fabulous job managing our account. And so it's no reflection on her hard work and creativity But just a need to leave that space for a while, which every now and then um, I in particular feel pretty deeply that it's just time to take a break. And as the universe usually does, right, we get signs in all directions. And this week it was just, you know, maddening kind of, um, not even maddening, just like really old discussions, people wanting to have. Uh, one of them being, you know, the whole transgender thing and not being allowed to use the word woman. And Margot and I both are pretty over it. Um, we have similar views. And also, I think each of us has something more specific to add to that conversation. So perhaps that will be a podcast coming up in the future. And I know it's long overdue. Uh, for so long, you know, I've heard from people that support our work, like, where do you stand on this whole thing? And when are you going to say something? And it just never really felt like uh, an argument I wanted to be in. And I still don't. I have no interest in an argument. People can call themselves whatever they would like. I do not care at all. However, um, I will not be told how to speak or what words to use and bullied, you know, bullied on social media, basically, which is hilarious, right? Because it's not real life. Uh, But bullied on our own page about the words we choose to use and um, the accusations that always follow. Because in general, people that have that kind of time on their hands to, you know, attack other people just out of the blue for being and for speaking out in whatever ways they choose. Um, They are people that don't, I think, generally have a lot creatively going on. So they have time, they have space to, you know, go out and I don't know really what their point is to cause a stir, you know, to make a fuss. Um, I don't really know, but it doesn't change my viewpoint on the whole thing, of course. And that would be funny if it did, right? Like these nasty social media trolls and comments out there. If that actually changed your mind on something, um, maybe that would be amazing. But that's not generally the way it works. And so uh, that's just one kind of silly reason this week that made it even more apparent to me 
that we need to take a break and step back a little bit and disengage from some of those conversations. Um, even though, you know, the purpose of social media, of course, is to make your voice known, I think, and that's positive and negative. And I realize that in this work, there are always new people coming, which is great. There's always new people coming to birth, um, coming to our account. And, um, you know, they just, I guess, won't hear from us for a while. But that is just the way it goes. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that goes along with that. Um, our doula academy, just brief announcements. I'll keep this really brief, but our doula academy, we have a special right now. So if you've been eyeing our doula training, now is really the time. You have one more day to get in on this. Uh, it's the doula academy and three other amazing trainings that we made that we haven't offered to the world yet. And I'll let you in on a behind the scenes fact. This is a problem, Margo, and I have, honestly. We make so much stuff and it's hard to get it out there because there's so much stuff. So um, these three separate courses will make their way into the world on their own because they're so great. And that's one thing that really gets me about making a lot of stuff. Uh, you don't want to feel like you ignored it. It's like a child you made, right? Like you don't want it to just feel like ignored. Um, so we will be singling out those three courses and offering those once we get around to doing that, which of course takes time. But for now, if you enter into this doula academy training, you will get the three trainings, which I didn't say what they were, but which uh, are a doula business training. And it's amazing, of course, if you want to do this work and actually make money and, you know, feel abundant rather than worn out and drained. There is a Mothering the Mother course, which is a postpartum doula training course. And again, nobody has seen these yet. If you're in the doula academy, you will be the first to be in these courses. And then a third, which is a childbirth education course uh, that you will be allowed to teach. And we hope all three of those really enhance whatever it is, the work that you do. Um, maybe you're not even a doula. Maybe you're just wanting to learn stuff. I talked to a woman today who doesn't necessarily want to be a doula, but she's been eyeing our trainings and thinks it would be really beneficial for her to just learn about birth. And of course, I agreed. There's so much good stuff in there. And I think uh, you'll get something out of it. Um, thanks, Sue. Sue's saying, I loved your doula training so much. It was awesome. I've sent your amazing offer to a few people who are starting out as doulas. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, that web address is indiebirth.org forward slash doula academy. So you can check it out and read more about the program. Um, it's pretty awesome. And so the deal is uh, $990 for the academy, the doula training, and the three other courses, which is crazy. I mean, that's easily worth, you know, I think we said $3,500 for all of those courses. But um, we just are excited about having more women in the world that feel like they can support other women. And the midwife role is what it is. Uh, it's awesome at times. And it's just such a long road. And we love doing that as well. Obviously, the Indie Birth Midwifery School is thriving and doing awesome. But that's a long path. That takes a long time. And if you want to get started, and maybe you never want to be a midwife, right? There's so many other ways to support women in birth 
as another woman without being the midwife. And, um, you know, I don't want to discourage anyone from being a midwife either, but I definitely don't think it's the role for everybody. And, um, you know, sometimes realizing that sooner than later can save people a lot of uh, strife, right, through apprenticeship and such. So the doula training is just across the board awesome for however you want to support people. And like I said, the the postpartum training, the mothering the mother is one of my favorites because I think that's just so needed. There isn't a woman out there who births and doesn't need postpartum support. It doesn't exist. Uh, she doesn't exist. It doesn't matter if she had the most blissful birth ever. It doesn't matter if she had a one hour labor. It doesn't matter. Every woman needs postpartum support. And the thing is, most women don't know that they do. So even if you're not the one providing the support, there's so much education for the whole family around how to support that woman and that mother. And if I hadn't done it myself 10 times and, you know, really screwed it up, probably the first three times at least, um, then I wouldn't know what I was talking about. But I know what I'm talking about, like on a deep visceral level because postpartum was one of the hardest times for me and I had great births so I know that it has really nothing to do with that um, it's the next phase that can feel really stressful for women right uh, we're healing we're nursing a baby our hormones are all over so I am all about the postpartum doula support maybe I'll become a postpartum doula maybe that'll be my new um, role in life well, thank you guys. Maria says, do you offer those trainings to midwifery students? Um, I mean, we have a different setup for midwifery students. So they take a class on the postpartum, of course, but it's from the perspective of providing midwifery care. But I hear you, Maria. I say all of the time that midwife and doula overlap. A lot of the times there's not a huge difference. So for example, a lot of the material I made for the postpartum doula training course was from my experience as a midwife. It's not because I've ever worked as a postpartum doula. It's because I tend to know and have seen uh, what women are needing during that time. And Joni says, I'm in IBMS and can't recommend any of your trainings enough. It is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to hear, um, especially since, as I've shared, Margot and I both are kind of at like a crossroads just in our own lives. And um, we'll have some exciting news, I think, in the next couple of months regarding a lot of our projects and some shifts we're wanting to make and have been wanting to make. So uh, you know how it goes, I'm sure, in your own life. You get little clues along the way, right, that something is changing, something is shifting, that you're headed in a new direction. And I think that's definitely how we're both feeling, not to speak for Margot. Um, but we have some some new excitement around how how future future things will be structured. Let's leave it at that. I'll leave a little mystery there. I'll leave a lot of mystery there uh, and probably have more for you soon, maybe even at the end of this summer, which is not very far away if August 1st is around the corner. So stay tuned for all the fun indie birth news and all of the shifts and changes we are making. And now we're going to somehow move into a shoulder discuss, shoulder dystocia discussion. And let's see. 
I don't know what will come out. I say that regularly. I have no idea what um, needs to be spoken or, you know, maybe what needs to be asked by people here. But I was laughing in a way that I'm talking about this topic today because in 200 plus podcasts, I have never talked about shoulder dystocia other than I have a really awesome birth story that I'm sure we'll hit on during this conversation uh, called The Indie Birth of Veda Rose. Many of you have heard it or read it. And um, that was, you know, a shoulder dystocia. And the mom, who's a dear friend, Christina, came on the podcast with me to tell her daughter Veda's birth story. So other than that podcast with Christina, I have never talked about shoulder dystocia. And I kind of had to ask myself why, in a sense, and why now? <laughs> because I'm about to go to Hawaii. I'm not attending births. And I realized... Um, it's because topics like this can be so heavy. And I have really enjoyed taking a step back from the midwife role to be able to talk more freely about things like complications. Um, I think there's something real about not wanting to go into the weeds about some of this heavy stuff when you're actually attending births. I think that's, that's my truth. Um, that's a very real thing for me. When I have time off from births, that's when I would do studying, right? Like breach or twins or whatever. Um, but when I'm in the active role of midwife, it's like, you got to be careful what you put in your brain. <laughs> so I think that's why I've never talked about shoulder dystocia. Um, I think it's a heavy topic. And I think even the that phrase, shoulder dystocia, is frightening and very dramatic. And the complication that we're going to be hitting on a little bit um, is definitely frightening and traumatic. So I don't think that's an accident. But like everything that I bring to the table, um, I hope, I think there's so much more to it. And so I definitely am not going to be regurgitating shoulder dystocia, uh, you know, statistics to you, or giving you some version of a midwifery textbook in this next hour. Um, it's really more a reflection and maybe a conversation with people in the chat around how we even got to this place in a way. Um, sure, let's just say, as I always do, not every birth is perfect. Babies get stuck, babies don't come out, babies die. Uh, we know these things. And so I don't want to act like nothing ever happens. But for shoulder dystocia, for it to take up so much space in midwifery school, even our school, we have a whole entire course on the dystocias, like the way a baby moves through the pelvis and what can go wrong, right? Because it does happen. But also um, in the midwifery textbooks that exist out there, and especially, as we all know, the medicalized world, freaking out all the time, being afraid of uh, complications like this, putting their fear on women, the whole thing. Like, it turns into quite a conversation. And 
isn't as simple. It isn't just about a stuck baby anymore. It's about, you know, women's bodies that don't work according to that model. Um, it's again that Robbie Davis Floyd, you know, birth as an American rite of passage, the woman's body is the machine, the baby is the product, something went wrong, as if the machine malfunctioned, right? That's kind of a, a way of imagining a shoulder dystocia, like, whoops, like the part just didn't fit in the right place. Um, and I'm laughing again, because I'm not in that space right now. So I have the liberty of taking a step back. But also because I think it is kind of ridiculous on some level that we talk about mom and baby in this way, as if there's ever the potential for them to be separate, you know, to be separate, to be separated in that process. Um, They really work as a team. So if a baby is having trouble getting out, then it's kind of a team effort, right? It's not just the baby. It's not just mechanics. It's not just numbers. Um, There is a conflict of some kind going on between the mom and the baby. And to me, that's so much more interesting and I think really makes it a more rich discussion, especially if you're someone that's maybe had a shoulder dystocia Um, I've talked to so many of those moms over the years, and many times they're really fearful, right? It was horrifyingly scary. Their baby was stuck. They couldn't do anything. Someone else had to remedy it. And in worst cases, you know, the baby is harmed um, or, you know, not able to be born alive, which, again, is super rare. But just for a moment, as I'm kind of contemplating that relationship between mom and baby, um, you know, I'm brought to my own last birth story, which wasn't a dystocia, wasn't a shoulder dystocia, but definitely was a conflict between my baby and my body, um, what he was wanting or needing to do. And again, on all the levels, I don't even know. I know physically what I think he was trying to do, uh, which was to be born, you know, far head first, which doesn't really work, especially when you're, um, you've got a larger head as he did. But it was such an education, really, it was such a deep education to feel that in my own body, to feel the conflict between my baby and myself. And to feel the emotions that came out of there um, and to reflect back. And again, this is for me to reflect back on my own emotions, my own beliefs that brought this situation to my door, if that makes any sense at all. So it wasn't just physical. I've birthed many babies. I had never experienced anything like that. There was nothing wrong with my pelvis or my body. Um, There was nothing wrong with my baby. He was just trying to be born. But together, we manifested a really crazy experience that changed my life. So that's a crazy way of talking about a dystocia. And again, I'm not trying to um, oversimplify in a way, because not every situation turns out as well as mine did. But I'm just sharing that it was so outside of anything I had learned um, as a midwife in a textbook. 
And I had the privilege and honor of being gifted this education by my baby and my body and having so much there to reflect on that changed my understanding. Um, if you can believe it, that changed my understanding on like a spiritual level of how babies get out because it's not just a physical process. And when he was trying to be born, I was open to all the help. Like, honestly, if it would had been possible for someone to help in, in any which way, I would have taken it. But that wasn't the path. It was something that had to be felt by me and my body. Um, I remember thinking that, like, I was going to die, that my hips were going to bust open. So when we go through that kind of experience, especially that's outside of the norm of what we consider just physiological birth, what patterning is our body releasing, right? Have you ever thought about that? Like, what codes did I invite in? What healing did I do? Um, what did I let go of in that birth? So we're talking on like a deep, a visceral level of like the muscles and tissues, right? In that dystocia, in that like conflict between my baby and my body. But then um, we're talking about, I don't even know what we're talking about, deep spiritual healing um, when when our bodies find a way through it all. And maybe that's with help and maybe that's not with help. In my case, my baby just came out. He just decided to come out. He was ready to come out. And it was all like a really weird experience because how does that happen, right? How did he not need help? Uh, we read all the ways that we can remedy a shoulder dystocia. And as a midwife, we learn all of the techniques and tools and hands here and hands there and twist this way and twist that way. And yes, sometimes we really do or or so it appears we we need to help. Um, but I got to experience another version where my baby and my body worked it out. And it really did change me. It changed me in a way I never really thought was possible. So uh, that's kind of my like esoteric intro into babies being stuck or not fitting, um, really respecting the emotional process that that can be. And for me, it was so powerful because I wasn't a victim to it. And I am lucky in that because I think many women, especially if they're in a medical setting, that's just the paradigm. The paradigm is like, come save me, um, whatever it is. And I think there is the potential for whenever a complication happens in birth to be left feeling guilty, to be left feeling shameful, like you did something wrong. Um, but that was not my experience. That was not my experience at all. And it was really awesome, actually, that, yeah, that I got to experience it that way. It, it changed me as a woman and as a midwife. So um, I'm just going to like peruse the comments. Um, no, the birth video of Veda is only in the midwifery school, but you can listen to the podcast, which is Christina telling the story. And I can talk more about that birth too. Right. Joni says, I felt like I was to blame. I must have done something wrong in quotes. Yes. 
But ultimately, I know that it was a huge learning experience for me. Uh, Stephanie says, I like that you pointed out that baby is an active participant in navigating uh, the birth. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll, I'll get back to the comments in a, in a minute. Um, I know I always get like conflicted because I love reading the comments and then I totally lose like any train of thought I had. So just bear with me. Yeah, I love that you're all resonating with it. And I and I feel like even though I can't see faces here, I'm just knowing some of you in person and, and knowing who listens to my podcast that you do get it. And perhaps that's why I've never had this discussion or this podcast done before, because before Rumi, um, I don't think I would have spoken to it in the same way, uh, even though, like I said, that wasn't a shoulder dystocia. So another reason that it's really funny that I am doing this podcast um, is because I wouldn't consider myself an expert on this topic at all. I have not experienced a lot of true shoulder dystocias, and I suppose we could get into like definitions here. Um, in my 15 years as a midwife on my own, I have only helped a couple of babies out. And that would be my definition. So you can have your own, the textbooks say different things. I, of course, would like to contest this idea that just because the head's out, we have a problem. No, we don't necessarily have a problem just because the head is out for however long it's out, five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes. Um, it doesn't mean something is wrong. It doesn't mean that baby is stuck. So to me, a shoulder dystocia is when the baby needs hands-on, hands-in, manual help to be born. And even that is a little sticky at times, only because there are midwives, there are doctors, there are people that do facilitate the birth. They do put hands-on, they do put hands-in, and there's not a problem. So don't get confused. I'm just saying for me. The times I have needed felt it was truly needed to help a baby out physically with my hands, I would only call those dystocias, and I only could tell you about less than five of them in all of those years. So again, like the postpartum hemorrhage topic, um, it's not you know that I'm waving some magic wand over these women to have them not have babies that are stuck. But I think it's majorly overdiagnosed, hence the fear, hence the like, why are we even talking about this? Because it really is so rare, but it's something that most women know about, you know, with Google and all the things, um, they know that this is possible. And of course, it is more possible in a medical setting, because a woman isn't moving freely. She may have been induced, she may have been coach pushed. There's a million reasons why a baby might be in a less ideal position in a birth that isn't happening physiologically. That's just the truth. So if that's the situation in that model, practitioner, practitioners are delivering babies anyway. So how does anyone even know in a lot of those stories that a baby was truly stuck? They get a baby out even if it was about to slide out just like butter. Those practitioners are taught to deliver the shoulders, rotate the baby, and get the baby out. And I've seen that at home. I've seen that with midwives in the past um, that I've assisted 
that's what they were taught. So again, if you're a woman in that scenario, I don't know what you think because you had hands in to get your baby out. So there's just a level of, um, you know, not probably really believing that you could do it. Maybe. I don't know. I don't want to speak for those women, but I think it's incredibly like infantilizing. Is that the word? And demoralizing in a way uh, to have all babies delivered in that setting and to have women and people out in the world think that's normal. So the shoulder dystocia discussion really does overlap with normal birth in that way because people are confused and, you know, there might be people here that are confused, whether you're a doula or maybe a mom that's had a scenario like this. It's very easy to be confused because we've been told it's so scary and so deadly and your baby's head's going to come out and then they're going to get stuck. And what is more horrifying to think about than that, right? So normal birth overlapping with this discussion Um is really common because people don't know what normal birth actually looks like. So many of you have seen Kendra's birth. Um, Kendra is a beautiful midwifery school student of ours. She was a client of mine this past year and her birth is on our YouTube channel. So I can't imagine anyone here hasn't seen it. There's also a commentary on her video for this reason. Um, Not only did she give her baby some breaths, which really wasn't that big of a deal in the best way. It was just beautiful and intuitive. But the other reason I had made the commentary video at that time was because there were so many ignorant comments on the internet about it being a shoulder dystocia. And I just couldn't help myself. That kind of um, misinformation just gets to me. And it's easy enough to correct because I think many people out there were just unknowingly not educated about it, right? They they didn't know any better. It wasn't like they were trying to be jerks, um, but it was not a shoulder dystocia. No. When the head is out, the head is allowed to be out. The baby is taking his time and all of the spiritual and emotional alignments are happening in his body, in the mom's body, in the cosmos for him to be born at the precise moment. So we don't mess with that. And I mean, I know there are midwives everywhere that also get this perspective, and I'm so grateful for that. But I feel like it's still a pretty rare opinion and a rare stance to take. And I mean, in the actuality of respecting that. So people can say they respect that. But, you know, I have countless, countless videos graciously shared by births I've attended, uh, women I've attended, who have that scenario, who have the head out and everybody's patient and we're waiting and everything's fine and we're waiting and the baby comes when they come. So one has to know if the baby is okay. That's the first way to not jump on a mom and baby and think it's a dystocia when it's not. Is the baby okay? Is the baby um, compromised? And if the baby's compromised, We don't even care if it's a dystocia. We just want to get the baby out sooner. And even in that scenario, um, a mom with some direction, with some encouragement, will probably get her her baby out faster than you would be able to help otherwise. So 
that's always the first question when we think that a baby might need help. Is the baby okay? Or is the baby compromised? And then we move from there. And I can think of one birth a long time ago that the baby was not okay. This was a very long time ago. It was probably the first baby I ever had to touch outside of my apprenticeship where I touched more people and babies. Um, But this baby did need help. And I remember the baby had his head out and he was compromised or became compromised shortly after. So it wasn't a moment to wait. And I remember instinctively just doing what I needed to do. And in hindsight, I mean, I hope I asked her permission, but it was a long time ago. I don't know that I did. I think she was grateful for it either way. But I remember this baby actually looking at me and kind of having his mouth open. And he didn't look vibrant. He didn't look well. And I really questioned myself after. Um, I remember talking to Gail Hart and, you know, some other elder midwives. Because it was the first time that I had to touch a baby. And it felt so big. And it felt so violating in some ways to be the first person to touch this little human that I really didn't want to have done it unnecessarily. And, you know, in some ways, I guess I don't know. But now that I have more experience looking back, it's like, oh, no, that baby definitely needed help. Was it a dystocia? No, because the baby came out really easily. But I think the cord had been compressed, right? So we don't always know why does the baby not look well? We just want to get the baby out. And then if we do need to help put our hands in, then we know what we're dealing with. We can feel it. You can feel the bone if that's what's going on, um, the impaction of the baby's bone against the mother's body. And again, it's conflict. There is such resistance there. The couple of times that I've had to do it, Um, You can barely get your hands where they need to go. It is so compressed. So it feels stuck uh, because it probably is. And that is my really long-winded way of saying that is a dystocia to me. If a baby just has his head out or takes a couple of contractions or uh, maybe the mom has to change position or maybe she does have to like really apply effort or get up or sit down or whatever. I still wouldn't call it a dystocia. So that's me. That's my definition. Um, sticky shoulders is a thing. It's kind of a phrase midwives use and whatever, you know, sometimes it is a tight fit for whatever reason. The angle is weird. Um, rarely the baby is big. It's it's such a big baby myth that they get stuck. It's it's a huge myth. Uh, but you know, sometimes it's a tight squeeze and the baby takes his time to get out for reasons that we will never understand. And those are not dystocias. So I think if everybody changed their definition, this probably wouldn't be a topic, <laughs> but probably the textbooks aren't going to change their definition. Okay, I'm going to go back to some of the comments here. Uh, It is like massively raining here all of a sudden, just kind of crazy. Yeah, I'm not reading all of them out loud. So don't hate me. But um, Joni, okay, I'd love if you'd address the difference in management between water and land. 
I was in water almost six minutes from head to body. We were attended by an incredible traditional second wave feminist midwife. She handled it beautifully. 40 years as a midwife and we were her only second true dystocia. Right. I, I hear you on that. But it was still scary to push and feel no movement. Right. Right. I love I love you sharing that, Joni, for for kind of like the, the same double reason that I have. Right. Which is like you were the mom. You got to live that. You got to experience that with that baby. Um, and then, you know, you have hospital experience and are going into midwifery and you had a really awesome midwife. So first, I also love that um, that was so rare for your very experienced uh, midwife who was a midwife for 40 years. And that's what I mean. I, I don't think it's it's I don't think it's common at all. And we could get into more later a little bit about how when we bring our own fear around these complications to birth, we tend to see them more. It's not really that different than the postpartum hemorrhage discussion. Um, the difference between water and land. Uh, one of the other true dystocias that I handled as a midwife was initially in water. Like the baby's head came out. Um, there wasn't any rotation and often the mom will say, and Joni, maybe you experienced this, but the mom, you know, they say something like, something's wrong. The baby's stuck. Side story. Sometimes people say that and the baby is not stuck. So you got to take it also with a grain of salt, just depending on the mom. Um, but yeah, that feeling of like no movement is really odd. And again, I have my own my own experience of that in, in a slightly different way. But it's it feels wrong, especially when you've had other babies. It's like, nope, doesn't go like this. Uh, the baby should be coming out now. So back to the story um, I was telling that happened in water. And I was a very new midwife. Honestly, it was like my second birth uh, on my own as a midwife. And I just got her out of the pool and was able to help her on land way better. So, you know, I don't think water changes what the baby is doing. It can make the mom more mobile, which of course we know, right? The first rule of a suspected shoulder dystocia is move the mother. We don't need to go right in and grab a baby unless things are really bad. The first thing we do is move the mom and maybe move the mom several times. Um, getting up out of the pool, stepping over the pool can help the baby like do that last little shift perhaps, right? So I don't think there's, um, you know, I don't know that there's a difference between water and land other than the mom moving more easily in water. And as the midwife, being able to be more efficient for me on land, which it's not about me until I'm asked to help, right? And so then we're working together. It's not about anyone other than getting the baby out safely and quickly. So um, water birth is great, though. I have, you know, seen a ton. And I have never, other than the one story I told, you know, I have never seen the shoulder dystocia in water. I know it happens. But maybe it's more rare, again, just because the mom can like really be more mobile and follow her body um, as much as she needs to, which I get only goes as far as it goes, right? The mom following her body is the best case scenario. But when women are at home, they typically are. So if we still have a stuck baby after that, 
yeah, there can just be, like I said, who knows what going on. Um, is it purely physical? I don't think so. But yet there are the mechanics of birth. And depending on when the water's opened or, you know, the baby kind of getting locked into the pelvis in a sort of weird way, there's a million factors that influence um, how the baby might rotate or fail to rotate through the pelvis. Yeah, so I can go into more detail, um, I mean, I think, about the baby being compromised. So as I shared with the one from many years ago, the baby just didn't look well. So I think first it's about knowing what a well baby, a healthy baby that is tolerating the birth process and, you know, I say excited to be born looks like. And, you know, for that, uh, Kendra's video on our YouTube is a great one to watch because her baby has great color. Um, you can see, you know, grimacing or muscle tone in his face. Uh, those are the two main things is just looking for these basic signs of vitality, right? Like that the heart is um, pumping and the baby isn't stuck. Like they're not being compromised. Their cord isn't, you know, being um, squeeze too hard, that they are getting the blood supply and the oxygen they need. And again, that's most babies. So what does it look like when a baby is born? They have normal scalp color, they have normal skin color, it's usually like a pinkish to purplish color, that's normal when you're being born. Uh, so a baby that doesn't have great color as the head is emerging, um, that baby may be compromised or may have been being compromised over the last little bit. And yeah, just that like lack of muscle tone, um, a baby that needs help, you can see it in their face. And I don't know if I can be more helpful than that, because I think on one hand, you have to just really know normal and, and feel normal, you know, feel the sense of normal that when a head comes out, when a baby is fine, there's just, you know, a feeling of excitement maybe in the room or whatever. And, you know, if a baby comes out and isn't um, in that space, then there's also a feeling there. And like I said, it seems like the moms also know, like Joni uh, shared as well. So she said, I waited for a contraction. And when one didn't come and I couldn't budge her, I looked at my midwife and I said, Gaskin, she felt turtled to me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's um, something I definitely wonder about just women out there that have had this experience of a shoulder dystocia and, and a true dystocia, right? Like just what they were feeling. Um, I, I feel like when I was in my own experience, again, not a dystocia, well, not a shoulder dystocia, it was some sort of dystocia, uh, that it was also, you know, it was emotional, that there definitely was like fear that came up. Um, it was terrifying in a way to feel, again, this conflict. So I'd be curious if more women out there who have had those situations um, notice that. Uh, and yeah, of course, hopefully it was handled well. Yeah. Yeah. And your baby you're saying was 11 pounds. And sure. I mean, I'm not saying the size thing never is a thing, but uh, more typically it's just the seven and eight pound babies, right. That um, are often shoulder dystocias. So it's not really about size. It's about 
everything else. <laughs> it's about what we're holding in our own bodies, our fear, our tension, whatever, maybe family patterns, which if you want to know more about that, I would definitely listen to that podcast I mentioned called The Indie Birth of Veda Rose, um, because Christina completely goes into and describes kind of the ancestral healing that happened for her with that dystocia and how that was a cellular pattern for her mother that was passed down to her. So it wasn't even super conscious, although it was conscious enough because we had talked about it in her pregnancy, um, but her body held something that she wasn't really able to access. And that's her story. So not saying everybody's is that way, but I think it's fascinating to think about all of that, right? Like what we pass down, what has been passed down, um, what our bodies remember. And then it just becomes this like open discussion around whatever it is that we need during birth. And it's less about, again, guilt or shame or blame. Um, it's more about complications showing us where we need to look where we needed to look in the past, where we need to look going forward. Um, that's the highest view I have of it all, because I know it's not an accident. Nothing is an accident. And I think this is a great example. Yeah, so Kaylee, you're sharing about your baby's umbilical cord being wrapped around three times. Um, sure. So again, that's what I mean is sometimes we don't quite know why isn't the baby coming out? And again, from my perspective, we've waited. The head is out. Um, you know, the baby is looking well. At a certain point, if the baby isn't looking well or contractions stop or something gets, you know, out of the ordinary, we're asking ourselves, you know, what the holdup is. But we don't often know. We don't often know until it's remedied. And we got our hands in there and we can feel what we feel. So sometimes it is cord. It's not a shoulder. It's a short cord or something like that. But in my own experience, and, you know, I'm not working at a hospital attending thousands of births, but in my own experience, I've never seen a cord issue like that. I know it happens, but I've never seen it. So where a cord is so short, for example, that the baby can't get out, um, I've just never seen it. So maybe I'm lucky. Right, Petra, totally. Yeah, so what we're really talking about here is getting back to how it actually looks for most babies to be born. And again, that's probably why I haven't ever done this topic as like a clinical nerd topic, because I don't have a lot to say about it. I mean, in a clinical sense, if a baby's stuck, if they're compromised, help them out and have the skills to do so, right? It's um, not that complicated in theory, not to say that it can't be really scary uh, in person, because it definitely is. It definitely is. And it's not, um, you know, it's not something I'd ever look forward to helping anybody with. But I also don't carry that fear around of babies being stuck. I sort of in general, even, even though I had my own experience of having that conflict, um, I don't hold it as a truth. Like, oh, well, babies get stuck. I really don't. I, I sort of don't believe it until I see it and feel it with my own hands. And even then, right, it's like, well, 
what did happen, right? Maybe this baby needed this or that, or uh, maybe this mom needed this or that. So yeah, there's not a whole lot more to say. Right. Of course, size, size, size. I mean, we think, uh, not we, we could talk about that all day, right? We could take all the case studies that women have had and midwives have had. And yeah, the truth is they're not normally the big babies. Um, what comes with the big babies is the fear. So I have felt that as a midwife. I can remember um, at least one. I can remember one very clear birth where we knew, the mom and I both knew this baby was very large. And I remember really having to work through that, not with the mom, on my own, because I did not want to carry that into this room. I did not want to expect that. I did not want to assume that. I did not want my energy to contribute towards that actually happening. And I think we are that powerful. I think we can influence someone's birth process to that degree. So I remember reviewing it with a couple of midwives um, who, you know, resonate with me and who are similar in thinking just to kind of talk me down and remind me that big babies aren't the ones that usually get stuck. Uh, It's kind of when we least expect it. And reminding me that if I needed to help, I would know what to do. And that's always a great reminder if you're a midwife, if you can give that to yourself, if you can share that with a friend, um, our hands know what to do, right? They're they are blessed because we are called to be there. So assuming you've practiced the skills or have the skills in your head, at least, um, you're trusting that your hands will kind of do divine work. I mean, I know that sounds a little extravagant, but that's how I've always felt about it because it's not like your brain at those moments clicks into textbook mode. Mine does not. My hands just have known what to do. And I don't say that arrogantly. I I trust that they are being led by hands by something higher than me. So after having some of those discussions with um, resonant midwife friends, I felt settled. And I went to the birth. And guess what? I was the only one there. I had no assistant. Uh, I don't remember what even happened with that. It was just her husband and me and her. And I'll tell you, she took a very long time to push that baby out. And I knew he was fine. And I sat on my hands and I just let her do her work. And there was no problem. There was no problem at all. So, you know, we all have to do our work on both sides of the fence. Uh, Women are scared of these things. Midwives can be scared of these things. And... It's no one's fault when they happen. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we just each can do our own part to not unnecessarily influence the outcome with our own fear, right? We still get what we get. We don't control birth. We're still going to have to deal with it if we are going to have to deal with it. But had I not sat on my hands or, you know, come up with some other reason that was based out of fear... Um, I don't know, right? It would have changed the outcome. It would have definitely changed the outcome and this baby's birth. Yeah, Petra, that's interesting. Um, Petra's commenting about the bigger the baby, uh, maybe it's better, right? Because they have less room. And I have always said that, like, when women I've worked with in pregnancy do that thing where they say, like, 
I hope my baby's not getting too big or you can tell that they're holding a fear of maybe their husband or a family member. Um, oh, well, I hope I don't go too much past 40, you know, baby's going to get so big. And my grandmother said, you know, our babies get too big in this family or something like that. I always remind them that I really have not seen a problem with big babies, that the bigger the baby, the more space they take up and the better position they generally have to be in. Whereas a small baby can like do weird things. So you can't see me if you're listening to this podcast, but you know, a baby with more space may not tuck his head as well, for example, creating a problem. So I've always said I would take, you know, to me, a a normal size baby is an eight pound baby. Those have been my babies. Um, I'd take just an eight pound baby or bigger Those little six pounders, uh, you know, often come out just fine, but sometimes they kind of get lost in the pelvis too, depending on the woman's pelvis for those reasons. So yeah, definitely reversing the myth of big babies here as well. Yeah, it's so fascinating, all of it. Okay, so there's a question. Do you think, though, that some midwives get more dystocias? And they have additional skills to handle it best. Like clients go to them because they instinctively know that's the midwife they need. Sure. Yeah. I mean, not anything is possible. Anything is possible. I think it's different, though. Possibly different. If a woman comes with, you know, maybe a prior shoulder dystocia. Maybe her last baby was a shoulder dystocia. And that was really scary. And... Her body is holding that memory and all of the things. And that's not something that she's looked through or worked through because she didn't really think she needed to or, you know, didn't think that was relevant. Um, I've had women come to me like that. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. Uh, let's let's talk about what happened, right? Like, let's be with your last experience. And whether it's been hemorrhage or dystocia or whatever it was, preterm baby, most of those women don't go on to repeat that same complication because they do the work around it. And so they end up not seeking someone to save them. But, um, you know, I'm not saying that's everybody's perception. And I think we are given what we need. So I think we are given what we need as the mother and as the midwife we are given what we need. So if you think you're going to go through an entire midwifery career and never have to do anything, then you are mistaken because it's not about you. It's about the women that are coming to you and you will have to deal with whatever it is if you choose to walk with them. So we do our own work, but we're not doing it to, you know, change the fate of this mom and baby, we're there for it. We've said, you know, I'm your midwife, I will be there for it. But I think midwives that are seeing lots of complications all of the time, perhaps could consider taking a step back and just seeing where that feels like it's emanating from. Because birth is generally not that complicated. Uh, You know, again, in 15 years, there's been less than five babies that I've ever had to help out. So it's not me, it's birth isn't that complicated most of the time. 
So if a midwife is constantly handling dystocias, um, something is going on. And I don't necessarily believe it's because every woman that is actually going to have a real dystocia is coming to her. Uh, there's probably some co-creation going on there. Or like we're saying, maybe an over-diagnosing or maybe it's a matter of semantics. Uh, there are midwives and, you know, like we've talked about today, many people out there who believe a, a dystocia is simply when the head is out and we wait for the body. So if that's the case, and then you're sticking your hands in for every one of those babies, then right, you could be walking around thinking that you have um, a dystocia every week, when in all reality, that baby was coming out. If you had just sat on your hands one more minute, that baby was coming out on its own, right, you know, right onto the floor. So how much are we meddling that we don't even know anymore what's real? And I think that's definitely true for any complication you could talk about. Um, bleeding, I said it last time. How do you know how many women bleed if you routinely do stuff? If you routinely give them herbs and then you say, oh, well, none of my clients bleed, maybe they weren't going to bleed in the first place. So taking a step back, looking at your own ego, looking at where you need to save someone, where you need to be the hero. And I've seen it. Um, I've seen it very up close and personal, that perspective. And I would only agree with the fact that some women are looking for that. And that's absolutely fine and their business. But that's just not the kind of midwifery that I'm interested in. So I don't attract those kind of women. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So when our grandmothers were having babies, um, right, maybe they weren't even being weighed. Like who knows what stories and all of that have been passed down to us. Um, it's all in there. It's all in there in our in our memories in some cases or in ourselves. And sure, you know, if if we were lucky enough to come from a family, and this is very far and few between, um, come from a family where babies just come out, and those are the stories we heard our whole lives, you know, that sets a woman up really great for having just a normal birth. Uh, it can be the stories we carry that influence us, whether it's our past stories or our mothers or our grandmothers. Um, I've heard it a million times. And it's so cool to see women working through that and past that. And not just the women. Uh, I think the babies are definitely coming to work through a lot of that with, with women, with these pregnant mamas, to kind of take them to the next level of not carrying whatever those things are. So um, somehow that's a little farther from shoulder dystocia, perhaps than you anticipated. But, uh, you know, I never quite stick verbatim to what I would call the boring topic at hand. Not that that was boring, but um, the textbook version, as I've said, to me is pretty one dimensional. I love talking about all the other things. And last, uh, just to kind of wrap it up, I think one of the most powerful, powerful ways to talk about something like a shoulder dystocia is kind of what I started with, which is women have so much power. So as a midwife, we had the skills, hopefully, we don't want to use them, but we have them. Sometimes that's really, really helpful. But how much power does that woman feel? in her own body and in her own creative process of birthing this baby. So sometimes, again, we really do need to help because if a baby's in such a position, 
in her body, um, she can't reach in there, right? And that's one of the freakiest things about a true shoulder dystocia. If you don't have a midwife, if you're free birthing, if you know, whatever, if the midwife doesn't get there on time, like, it is scary in that very small percentage, because it's going to be really hard to stick your own hands up there around your belly and help your own baby. Um, That said, back to the power, we have so much power in navigating our birth process um, and in getting our babies out. So even though I'm saying it seems hard for a woman to reach in there and get her baby out, I think she can summon uh, strength and courage from within her if she needs to, right? Just the way a mother, any of us here uh, would do something superhuman to save our child, right? Mothers or, or people even lift cars. We would do, we would do crazy things with our bodies um, to preserve a life. And so I think with shoulder dystocia, that is something that has always given me a lot of peace that I can be there. I can be skilled, but this is not about me and my skills. If worse comes to worse, this is her birth. This is her baby. If I can't help or if I'm not there, I also trust that she would do what she needs to do. And I really love helping instill that courage in the women I work with um, if they don't already have it or maybe helping them magnify it or reflecting it back to them because that is such peace to me going into a birth, whether I'm the mom or whether I'm the midwife. Um, that I have what I need. And that even if no one ever showed up, I would find a way to get the job done. And I believe that. And I've seen it. I've seen it in, um, you know, hemorrhage scenarios. I've seen it in other scenarios where the mom just kind of really becomes, yeah, superhuman and and gets the job done. So I always say that to wrap it up because, um, you know, some of these things can be intimidating and scary and feel like you're just a victim to them. But of course, that's never my view. All right, everybody, uh, it is time to move onwards here with some packing and cleaning up. But it was so nice hanging out with you. I'm really enjoying these live podcasts and being able to read comments and commune a little bit. It's so much nicer right now than talking straight into a microphone. So I appreciate you being here. I will be headed to Hawaii in two days. And so I will get back on the live podcasting as soon as I am (laughs) not jet lagged, which might take a little while. But I bet I'll be back sooner than later. And I'll just be doing this live uh, from the beach. Yeah, I wish I wish I could do it from the beach. That would be so great. In the meantime, um, if there are topics you'd love to do this way, because it is a slightly different setup than my normal podcast, then you can always email me or find me some other way. Probably not on Instagram, since we're going to be taking a break there. But I'd love to hear what would feel good to chat about here. And I'll take that into consideration as I plan some future topics. All right, everybody, have a beautiful week. And I'll see you when I see you. Bye.